I got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello, and welcome to episode 129 of Additional History Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and today I've got three great additional history stories for you. They are three stories that were printed on the same day as another famous date. And as always, I also have a fun advertisement for you. But today's advertisement is going to be extra special. I was super excited when I saw it in a newspaper on this day because, honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if more people know about the advertisement than they do about the main event I'm about to talk about. So make sure you stay tuned until the very end, and I'll make sure I spend extra time on the advertisement. Today's date is March 9th, 1916, and I'm taking our main headline from the front page of the Evening Herald out of Albuquerque, New Mexico. It says, Columbus is raided by Mexican outlaws under Francisco Villa, 15 killed, town fired. Friends, March 9th, 1916 is the day Pancho Villa attacked the U.S., specifically New Mexico. This isn't a super common subject, and the details and key characters in the event are probably foggy in many minds. I know they were in mine, so I'll give you a little more background than usual. Pancho Villa was born in Mexico in 1878. His parents were farmers, and he helped them out, and even took charge when his father died. Well, when a man started harassing his sister, Pancho Villa killed the man and ended up going to prison. But he escaped, and he became a fugitive. While on the run, Villa joined a group who was creating an uprising against the Mexican dictator of the time. They succeeded in their efforts, and they put Francisco Madero in charge of the country. Except, that didn't last very long, and Madero was soon ousted too. Pancho Villa then fled to the United States for a while, but he decided to return to Mexico and start his own military. I mean, everyone seemed to be doing it, so why not, right? Anyway, sometimes Pancho Villa was friends with other revolutionaries in his country, and sometimes he was enemies with them. This led to a lot of fighting, and the conflicts went on for years. Finally, in 1920, the Mexican president pardoned him for his actions, and he retired from guerrilla warfare. His retirement years only lasted for three years, though, and then he was assassinated. So, now that you know a tiny, very, very, very shortened version of Pancho Villa's life, I'm going to tell you what led up to the attack on March 9, 1916. Well, one of the men who won power in Mexico back in 1913 was Victoriano Huerta. President Woodrow Wilson, the U.S. president of the time, couldn't stand the guy, and he wanted him out of power. So, he gave military support to one of the revolutionaries trying to take over, Venustiano Carranza. Carranza was one of the men that Pancho Villa was sometimes friends with and sometimes enemies with. Well, Carranza won the head job of Mexico in 1914. But once he was in power, President Wilson changed his mind and decided that he didn't like that leader either. So, he threw his support behind a third person. That time... It was Pancho Villa. Are you getting confused yet? This is a really hard story to follow, I know. Anyway, it was a very unstable time, 
and it got crazier. A year later, President Wilson decided he didn't mind Carranza so much after all, and decided to support him again rather than Pancho Villa. Well, Pancho Villa apparently had some rage issues, and he was extremely angry that he'd lost U.S. support. So he decided to take out his anger on his neighboring country. The first attack came in January of 1916. That time, Villa's group attacked a train and took 18 Americans hostage. Except instead of letting them go, he slaughtered everyone. Fast forward to March 9, 1916, today's famous date, and Pancho Villa decided to attack the state of New Mexico. He crossed the border at the town of Columbus, and Columbus was a small town with just a couple of thousand people at the time, but Pancho Villa brought an army of 1,500 men to fight them. The newspaper accounts from that day are terrifying. The article I took the headline from says that people woke up to the sound of gunfire, so they ran out into the streets to see what all the commotion was, and then they were shot down by snipers. The bandits then started lighting buildings on fire throughout town. And it also says that Pancho Villa's bandits cut the telephone lines so that people couldn't call for help to nearby towns where there were U.S. troops stationed, like El Paso, Texas, which was about 80 miles away from Columbus, New Mexico. The 13th Cavalry was in the area, and they began to fight with Pancho Villa's men, and eventually pushed them back across the border into Mexico. But when the bodies were counted, and everything was done, 19 people had been killed. Casualties could have been much worse on the side of the U.S., though, since Pancho Villa lost nearly 100 men during the battle, and that included his second-in-command, Pablo Lopez. So, as a result of the attack, the U.S. got permission from the Mexican government, although that permission was reluctantly given, to chase down Pancho Villa on Mexican soil in what is now known as the Mexican Expedition. But even after a year of chasing the bandit and his men, the U.S., led by General John J. Pershing, wasn't able to capture Pancho Villa, and they were forced to withdraw. Pershing went on to command the troops fighting in World War I, and as I said earlier, Pancho Villa was pardoned and then assassinated a few years later. So there you have it, the very, very, very watered-down version of the time New Mexico was attacked. But that wasn't the only thing being reported in newspapers on that day, as you can probably guess. So let's find out what else was happening on March 9th, 1916. Many of the newspapers on March 9, 1916, featured articles about World War I on their front page. It would still be another year before the U.S. officially entered that war, but it had already been raging for years in Europe, and people were keeping a close eye on the action. Many of the newspapers also included political stuff that was going on, including the fact that the Mississippi governor had suddenly vetoed a bill he'd pledged to pass because he found out it would mean his underqualified nephew would lose his job. People weren't happy about that one. Ultimately, for my first additional history story of the day, I decided to share an article I first found in the Butler County Democrat out of Hamilton, Ohio. This story is a bit crazy and very sad, but guess what? It's not a murder story. The headline says, Nathan Cohen, Man Without a Country, finally passes away. 
Nathan Cohen was born in a village in Russia in 1878. I tried to look up the area where he was born, and I'm not positive, but there's a chance the area is actually part of modern-day Latvia. But that's not important. It is known that Nathan was Jewish, and the town where he was born at one time had a decent-sized Jewish population. Anyway, for whatever reason, Nathan decided he wanted a new start and a new life, so he got on the ship and traveled all the way down to South America. He got off the boat in Brazil sometime before 1912, and then he spent several years in that country earning and saving money. He would have been in his 30s, and whatever job he did there left him with a fair amount of money, well over $100,000 if you compare his wealth to modern money. Then, in May of 1912, Nathan got on a boat in Rio de Janeiro and headed north to New York City. The United States was his ultimate destination, and he was ready to go. One source says he got off the ship at Ellis Island and quickly hurried to Virginia. He had plans to start a store with another family member there. Another source says it was actually Baltimore that he got off the boat in, and he headed for Jacksonville, Florida to start the business. And this is where some information from Nathan's story is missing. At some point, he got married. It could have been in Russia, it could have been in Brazil, or maybe it wasn't until he got to Virginia or Florida. I have no idea. What I do know is that the store he started with a family member didn't go so well. According to our article, quote, He lost his little fortune and his wife left him. Pretty sad, huh? In 2020, researchers in Connecticut came across this story, and they started doing some digging of their own. They said that it was believed Nathan was swindled out of his money, and that his wife left him to be with his best friend, which makes the story even sadder. But don't worry, things get worse for poor Nathan Cohen. After his wife left him, he went to Baltimore, or stayed in Baltimore if that's where he was, to look for her. The stress of losing his fortune and losing his wife and being in a country he wasn't completely familiar with started to take a toll on Nathan, and he became depressed, and he started talking to himself. He was considered mentally unsound, and the newspaper article said he went insane. He was committed to an asylum in Baltimore in 1914. Now, things like this do happen, and sometimes people have to be given government assistance, and that's okay, but Nathan had a problem with that. He'd only been in the United States since 1912, and according to the immigration laws of the time, if someone needed public assistance within three years of coming to the country, they would be deported. I'm sure when Nathan arrived, with a good chunk of money in his pocket, the thought never even crossed his mind. The state didn't want to keep paying for him to be housed in the asylum, so they decided to deport him, and they stuck him on a ship, headed back to Brazil, since that's the country he came from when he first entered the U.S. And by law, the shipping company that brought an immigrant to the country had to be the one to foot the bill to get them back. Fast forward however many days that boat ride took, and Nathan found himself in even more of a pickle. The government of Brazil said, nope, we're not going to take him. He's not a Brazilian citizen either, and he can't get off that ship. So Nathan stayed on the boat 
and made the return trip to New York City. Can you guess what happened when the ship arrived? Yep. The U.S. said, Nope, we're not going to take him. He's not a U.S. citizen either. He can't get off the ship. Friends, Nathan Cohen was forced to travel back and forth by ship from the U.S. to Brazil for nearly two years. Okay, some sources say it was only a year, but either way, it was a really, really long time. He never got to get off the boat, and he traveled more than 33,000 miles. There's not much said about his time on the boat, so I can only guess and assume that it was the same boat the entire time. I don't know if he was given the worst accommodations, or if he was given a job and worked as crew, or if the crew made friends with him and took care of him, or if they just ignored him. After all, I'm sure it was a problem for them too, depending on the severity of his mental illness at that point. Nathan's predicament didn't go unnoticed, and his story was told and printed about in newspapers. He became known as the man without a country. And yes, there is a movie with that as the title, and no, it is not about Nathan Cohen. Finally, a couple of different organizations went to bat for Nathan. The Knights of Pythias, which is a non-sectarian fraternity, and the Sheltering and Immigration Aid Society of America were both mentioned in the 1916 article. And the Hebrew Sheltering and Guardian Society was mentioned in a 2020 article. After many trips back and forth across the ocean, Nathan was finally allowed to disembark and was taken to a sanitarium in Green's Farms in Connecticut. The deal was that as soon as the war was over in Europe, he would be sent back to Russia. Except Nathan died in March of 1916, before that could happen. The poor man was still in his 30s at the time of his death, and he was buried in a Hebrew cemetery on Staten Island in New York. For my second additional history story of the day, I've got a short, kind of funny story coming out of Michigan. I saw this story in multiple newspapers from March 9, 1916, but I'm going to take the headline from the San Bernardino County Sun out of San Bernardino, California. It says, Some Bull in Michigan City. This headline is clever because it isn't referring to something ridiculous going on in town, but rather it's literally about a bull. The day before the article was printed in a newspaper, a couple of traders went out to a farm about five miles outside of Bay City, Michigan. They were going to meet a farmer there. The farmer had something those traders wanted, a bull. Now, in modern times, if someone were to purchase an animal like that, they'd most likely show up with a covered trailer pulled by a pickup truck. They would load the animal in the back, maybe shake hands with the person they bought it from, and then they'd get back in their vehicle and drive away. But back in 1916, it wasn't as simple a thing as that. So, since the traders who bought the bull from the farmer that day didn't have a vehicle to pick it up, they tied a rope around the animal's neck and started walking toward the slaughterhouse that was about five miles away. I'm not sure how big of a bull it was, but I've been to enough rodeos in my lifetime to know that I would have wanted more between me and the bull than just a rope. 
Well, after walking about half of the five miles, and right after crossing into the city limits of Bay City, the bull started acting up. Apparently, it didn't like the idea of walking so far, and it stopped in the road, not willing to walk any further. One of the traders held onto the rope and pulled and pulled and pulled, while the other trader got behind the bull and poked at it with a pitchfork. Still, nothing happened. That is, until the trader holding the rope got tired and pulled a red bandana out of his pocket to wipe the sweat off of his forehead. Upon seeing the red bandana, the bull snorted, and then he roared, and then he charged forward. The trader couldn't hold on to the rope, and it was yanked from his hands as the bull went on his rampage, not caring what he destroyed. The bull ran through a fence, tearing it down, and then ran straight into a car and completely knocked it over. Next, the bull ran toward a woman who had to dash inside her kitchen to get away from him. The article is unclear whether the bull actually followed the woman into her home or not, but either way, she got lucky and he didn't hurt her. After chasing the woman, the bull walked out into the middle of the street and stood right there in the middle of the streetcar tracks, looking around at the people and scaring pretty much everyone to go inside somewhere. Nobody knew what he would do next, and which of them he would suddenly decide to charge. With the bull in the middle of the road, cars could neither come nor go, and traffic started to get pretty backed up. Finally, after about half an hour, the police came with a plan of action. And I will say that it was the riot police that came. The police opened fire on the bull, hitting it, but the bullets didn't seem to have any effect on the bull, and still he stood, staring everyone down, only angrier than he had been before. The police sent someone back to the police station to get another gun. This time they came back with a large caliber rifle, and shot at the bull again. That time it worked, and the bull fell to the ground, dead, with six bullets inside his body. For my last additional history story of the day, I had a hard time deciding which story to tell. There were a lot of little ones that I could have pursued further. For example, I found three different stories about three different railroad accidents. No surprise there, since I read about those pretty much every time I open a historical newspaper. And even though the U.S. hadn't officially entered World War I, the newspapers were very much aware of what was going on overseas and made sure their readers knew about it. For example, the Germans had sunk two British ships, and an Italian liner was on its way to the war. Another German ship caught an entire British fleet, consisting of 15 ships, but the British did recapture trenches in other areas. There was also writings about the food shortage in Russia because of the war. Basically, every newspaper had something to say about it. Another newspaper had all kinds of things to say on its front page. The Altoona Tribune out of Pennsylvania said that a brand new church had just been built, but then it caught on fire and burned. It also said that a school full of children had caught fire and burned, but luckily everyone made it out okay. Another article said that 15,000 cans of pork and beans had been shipped to their area, and they were found to be bad, and nobody should eat them. Another article talked about a big jewelry heist, 
where a thief made off with many thousands of dollars worth of jewelry. In a very sad, small article, I read that a father had accidentally shot and killed his seven-year-old daughter when he thought she was an intruder who had broken into their home. Another man was, quote, blown to atoms in a chemical plant explosion in Oklahoma. The list goes on and on. But there was one story that surprised me. It's the story of Mrs. L.E. Pinnell, and I first saw this in the Greensboro Patriot out of North Carolina. But the same article was printed in newspapers all over the country for days because it was a bit controversial. The headline says, Former Greensboro Man Killed by His Wife. The story took place in Atlanta, Georgia. Mrs. Ellie Pinnell, and I'm sorry, but I have no idea what her real name is, had been having trouble with her husband. He was abusive to her, and she was starting to get really tired of it. They'd been living in North Carolina, where 33-year-old Mr. Pinnell worked as the foreman at a laundry facility. Then, six weeks before the event, they packed up and moved to Atlanta. One day, Mrs. Pinnell decided she'd had enough of the abuse. After all, it wasn't just her being affected. Mr. Pinnell was also abusing the couple's three children. So, she marched herself down to the police station and told the police chief that he needed to do something about her husband. She then tipped off the police chief that there had actually been a warrant issued for her husband back in North Carolina, and he should help that investigation by arresting her husband and shipping him back there. Well, the police chief didn't take her too seriously, and pretty much told her to calm down and go back home and wait it out or wait to see if anything else happened. When police records were checked, it showed that nothing had been done and no attempts had been made to arrest or even interview her husband. In fact, even though the police chief admitted he had talked to Mrs. Pinnell about her husband a few days before the incident, he couldn't even remember why there had been a warrant out for him in the first place. I guess Mrs. Pinnell decided it was time to take matters into her own hands, because the next time her husband tried to abuse her, and this time it was by beating her with a leather strap, she pulled out a gun and shot him. He didn't survive. Mrs. Pinnell was, of course, arrested for murder, but she claimed it was self-defense. Some people believed her, and some people thought that she had just wanted to get away with murder. As the couple's past was looked into more and more, and as friends back in North Carolina were interviewed, it became clear that the couple had been having trouble for a very long time, and that Mr. Pinnell had actually been fired from his job as foreman at the laundry company because they found out he had been having an affair. Domestic abuse was not always taken seriously more than 100 years ago, so I was really interested to see how all of this turned out. Would Mrs. Pinnell be found guilty of murder, or would she be set free? I only had to look forward a few days in the newspapers to get my answer. The grand jury in the county refused to even indict Mrs. Pinnell, saying that they believed she had indeed acted in self-defense, and she was immediately released from jail. I guess sometimes you do have to take the law into your own hands. Like I said earlier, I have a special advertisement for you today. 
I found this on page two of the New York Age out of New York City. It says, Madam C.J. Walker's six weeks treatment, $1.75. If your hair is short, thin, falling out, or breaking off, you should not delay but write to us at once. The advertisement then says that the product comes with a money-back guarantee, and then of course gives the address to the place you can send your money to buy hair product. Now, this advertisement doesn't sound that exciting. That is, unless you know who Madam C.J. Walker is, and what she accomplished in her lifetime. You see, she was the first self-made female millionaire in the United States. Walker's real name was Sarah Breedlove. Her parents had been enslaved in Louisiana until right before she was born in 1867. When she was just seven years old, she became an orphan. And when she was 14 years old, Sarah got married for the first time. The trials in Sarah's life weren't done yet, though. She became a widow with a young daughter when she was just 20. Sarah decided to move to St. Louis, Missouri, and look for work there to support her daughter. She started working in the laundry and did that for the next 20 years. But it didn't pay very well, and she was exhausted pretty much all of the time. With all of the stress in her life, she started to have scalp problems, and her hair started to fall out. There really wasn't much on the market as far as products for African Americans went. But someone gave Sarah a hair product to try, and it seemed to help a little. So, Sarah thought it could be better, and she decided she was going to be the one to figure it all out. She started experimenting, and pretty soon she came up with a product that completely changed her hair. She later said that the ingredients came to her in a dream. Sarah started small with her business. She would mix the hair product in her bathtub and then sell it to all of her friends. Then in 1906, Sarah got married for a second time. That time she married C.J. Walker. They moved to Denver, Colorado, and she began going by the name of Madam C.J. Walker. In Denver, she started selling her hair product door-to-door and she started teaching classes about hair care. Within months, the product had taken off, and she was making 10 times what she made when she worked in the laundry. In 1908, she moved the headquarters of her business to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and then two years after that, she moved it to Indiana, to Indianapolis, and the Walkers bought a big home and started a factory there. The money just kept rolling in, But the thing that I really love about Sarah Breedlove, a.k.a. Madam C.J. Walker, is that she was a philanthropist, too. She contributed to and participated in many charitable organizations, and she taught other Black Americans how to be successful in business and set up scholarships for them at a time when they were struggling. And her company produced jobs for thousands of Black women who would sell her products door-to-door, as well as teach hair care classes. She also encouraged her sales agents to be active in their communities and local charities, just like she was. Madam C.J. Walker's business model was copied by a lot of other companies, including Avon, and when she died a few years after this advertisement was printed, in 1919, her lawyer said that she was a millionaire, although nobody ever knew exactly how much wealth she had amassed. Some people say it was less than a million, And one article, printed as recently as 2008, said it was actually closer to $2 million. 
Either way, she led a very successful life and helped a lot of people, but she knew it was more than just luck. She once said, There is no royal, flower-strewn road to success, and if there is, I have not found it. For what success I have obtained is the result of many sleepless nights and real hard work. Friends, thanks for listening to today's episode of the podcast. I hope you learned something additional about history today. I know I did. Join me again next Monday for a new episode where I'll tell you about the deadliest natural disaster in the history of the United States. Do you know what it is? I'll bet some of you do. Talk to you later.